Yo. Hey, Tom. How uh, are you? Yeah, very good. Uh, I will jump in and do us a quick introduction for everyone. So, uh, I'm Thomas of the Cave Nutrition Store and uh, Nice Supplement Co. and other things. We're actually, I'll just drop the teaser right now. Um, we're actually going to be joining Strom Sports Nutrition in August. So, when most of you listen to this, we will be Strom Sports Nutrition down under. Um, this is Jake. He is owner and operator of Taurus Nutrition Coaching. And um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do in like a couple lines? Yeah, 100%. So yeah, essentially I operate uh, both an online and also in-person service, um, working primarily around hypertrophic outcomes. So specifically around kind of the bodybuilding type niche, focusing right around the nutrition, training, obviously supplementation with these guys as well, and pretty much anything you can kind of think of under the umbrella of general kind of ergogenic aid and health and performance um, within that kind of realm. Yeah. So are you specifically, it'd be good to box this are you specifically guys competing to go on stage no so that that is definitely an area of um preference for myself um i would say probably my uh type of personality is very much uh that kind of robotic almost ocd type level so um I, I think I align quite well with those type of individuals just kind of naturally, but no, definitely not kind of uh, niched out to kind of just the just the bodybuilding competitors uh, themselves. So completely open to lifestyle people, um, generally just people that, who are wanting to make a make a bit of a difference, you know, learn a, learn a thing or two along the way. And um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense as I guess what I see you communicating out there a lot is one of the primary things you're looking for is dedication. And so on that is, yeah. Um, do we want to just talk a little bit about your background? Uh, you yeah. went to University of Canterbury too, which is actually where I did. I studied engineering at Canterbury. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so back in the day when you were ordering subs from like down there and stuff, I was always like, ah, oh, I actually have a silent partner that I think he was on campus at the time too. So one time oh, right. he was like, ah, sh- should I just drop him off the subs? Cause he had a whole <laughs> stack, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, we thought we'd keep it professional at the time to keep it simple, but yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. What did you study? And, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the master's process that you went through? Yeah, hundred percent. So I did my bachelor's in what was sport coaching um, at, at, at the time. So that was majoring right around the sports science and the strength and conditioning um, type of type of papers. So within that, obviously, it was relatively holistic um, going through obviously basic kind of coaching processes and just kind of the, the theoretical foundations of like pedagogy and teaching. And then from there, um, kind of refined out a little bit after those three years into my Masters of Sports Science. So obviously within that, um, it was partially um, paper or course-based with a primary emphasis around the thesis. Now, my thesis was specifically right around that hypertrophy kind of oriented um, kind of topic. So I did mine on the effects of dietary, anti-inflammatory and antioxidant um, consumption on markers of long-term skeletal muscle hypertrophy. So we're talking things like uh, omega-3, uh, quercetin, vitamin C, vitamin E, basically anything you can kind of get from a dietary perspective um, in, in, in terms of that kind of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory based compounds, yeah. 
And so I've actually read your review paper a couple of times. It turns mm-hmm. out I requested it from you maybe a month ago. It turns out I had actually read it, I think, when it yeah. first came out. What would you say drew you to that, um, shall we say, the specific compounds and then mm-hmm. the topic overall? And I guess it is with the consideration that I understand you likely had to pick, like there was just a few master's topics that you had to pick and you had a selection of them. Yeah, so I actually had complete free reign on what oh, I well. wanted to. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's a little bit different. Now, complete transparency, I went with a systematic review, meta-analyses type um, base because I did not want to go through the human ethics um, yes. approval, um, yeah. you know, finding yeah. participants, so on and so forth. So me being, you know, think about it early, early at the time, you know, why don't I do this? And I can, you know, kind of hit the ground running from the very get go. So that's kind of the approach that I took. So reviewing all of the papers out there on that specific topic. So that's on its own refined um, the types of compounds that had already been researched. So, you know, some other things which I was, you know, potentially looking into, I wasn't able to because they just hadn't been researched at that point with the markers that I was looking at. So the primary thing, and for, for all the listeners who you know 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 a bit about the reviews and uh, analyses type processes, you have uh, an inclusion and elig- eligibility criteria. Now, with that, obviously, you have to kind of refine out what you're looking at. So, for things like muscle hypertrophy, I had to look at uh, muscle cross-sectional area, lean body mass, fat-free mass, all of those kind of key terms. Um, essentially, then I, I plugged into my kind of database search process, and that's kind of how I ended up with those papers in the end. Yeah. And when you are, because this follows on well to our following conversation and why I wanted to have this conversation with you specifically, Mm -hmm. Uh, when you are looking at papers and you're assessing for quality, there is a common quality heuristics or shall we say like measurement tools. Absolutely. Off the cuff. What would be mm-hmm. some that, uh, you know, the most important and also actionable ones that people could, you know, think about while they're reading papers themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So the study design is really pivotal. Um, so you're looking at things like if they are having participants, how well they've done to control obviously a control group. So whether we're looking at something like a placebo or we're looking at like a blind or double blind based um, experimental design. So those things, it's really important obviously to negate or completely offset uh, the psychological component of people entering into studies. So that's probably one of the first major things that we're looking at. So look into things again, look in the methods section that should be completely transparent and you don't have to have full full text access either. that should be written in the abstract generally within sort of a sentence. You should be able to get a pretty good understanding of that. That's probably the first thing I'd always look at. The second thing is always going to be whether the sample size and actually the sampling population is going to be relevant to your actual kind of question. So specifically in my kind of realm, um, right around the kind of hypertrophy, looking into, you know, resistance training um, based approaches, it's really important to not just look at your general population type type people, the untrained people who have never trained before, um, things like that. Like try try to really delve into who your population is and then also your study design. Those are probably my two main things I'd be looking into, obviously, as well as how many people, um, you know, whether we're seeing a study duration that's actually going to be able to see those responses actually come into fruition. Like you wouldn't see a three-week study design for hypertrophy. You're probably not going to see any real magnitude of difference there. So yeah, just, just some basic kind of things to look out for. 
Yeah, and I guess when I'm looking at them, I'm often looking for very specific details on how much they have made clear on their study design, because if yeah. they don't make that clear, mm-hmm. then in my books, even if they have done a good study design, uh, if they're not communicating that, then it's not a high enough priority. It is cl- like, it's a very important thing. Um, so reading the study design is very important mm-hmm. and not just jumping straight to the conclusions or reading only the abstract. Um, yes. It is almost the biggest turnoff on any review that I see when they include something that they could only have the abstract in a meaningful way. Like you could have yeah. a one-line comment on mm. like, hey, we only had the abstract. This is what this Russian paper said or something. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. But if they draw any conclusions from an abstract only, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm out. Yeah. No, no way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which conveniently, uh, many of our larger regulatory bodies do quite a lot, uh, which is very disheartening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's, there's, there's conflicting evidence with that as well. Like maybe some papers say this, some papers say this. So that that's yeah. kind of where you, you look for that kind of hierarchy of the evidence as well. So those things like your systematic reviews, those meta-analyses, which are really actually combining all of those pieces of evidence together whilst also assessing you know their risk of bias and stuff like that those are really the pinnacle of what you're actually wanting to be assessing obviously some things haven't quite got there yet so that's completely okay but if you do have the option to look for the meta-analyses review type Mm -hmm. type papers that's always a really good place to start as well yeah and i agree you kind of said that you you get you made it out like you were opting out for the easy option with what you (laughs) did but uh, i think I think is actually a more valuable option though, in the sense that mm-hmm. there is a lot of research out there and yep. a lot of it does just need to be pulled together and actually weighed mm-hmm. up against other research. And I don't think yep. there's enough of that at the moment yep. or certainly not enough that's brought to light. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want to dive on to our actual focused on because i could probably talk study structures <laughs> yes. forever yeah. You know? yeah. i was like i was like oh man yeah. we're 10 minutes in and i could keep the same right here. Yeah. yeah 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 it's interesting maybe we'll have to do that again another time but um topic that we wanted to focus on specifically because i have had a bunch of questions in the last two months perhaps mm-hmm. specifically on hair growing and yep. we've talked a bit about it between us mm-hmm. and i it's it's interesting. I think I have ideas as to why I'm seeing the trend, but we could jump into that later. Oh, yeah. I'd be intrigued to hear about that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. What is your interest? Why are you interested in it? Quite simply put. Well, fun fact for the viewers, and obviously you'll be completely aware. I actually yeah. messaged almost myself probably around sort of six weeks ago saying, hey, mate, I've had a little look into a couple of papers, but I'd love to hear your perspective because I don't think you'll be able to see from the camera here but I'm 24 years old and I've started to get a couple of the of the old grey, the forbidden greys myself. So I messaged Thomas, you know, very, very like-minded kind of individual, you know, wanting to hear his kind of um, thoughts on it as well. And yeah, I guess just sort of since then, it's just sort of blossomed a little bit and maybe you've had some other people sort of approach you with a very similar kind of uh, interest and in going from I, there. I think at that time I had... Uh maybe about three or four people all in the space of one week. It was a tight clumping. And that was where I was like, because at first I was like, oh yeah, I really need to do some reading on that. And I think we Mm. may have discussed this quite a while ago too because you're you're taking copper supplementation or have them. I am indeed, which you're right next to me right now. (laughs) Cool. Um, 
yeah, and so, yeah, it was always in the back of my head. It was one of those things, but I guess uh, without, before I got into it, it wasn't what I would consider an immediately interesting topic. Uh, however, since getting into it, now I'm like, okay, this is very interesting and somewhat yeah. uh, indicative of what's going on in someone's lifestyle overall. Mm. Yeah. Uh, with a rough paintbrush at the moment, we don't understand too much. Yeah. I can comment too. So I, in about, let's think, I would have been about 14. When I was 14, I had a few spots on my head, and mm -hmm. like quite slick spots. This is not like scattered graying, yeah. but yeah, right. uh, maybe three or four that all popped up and just completely gray white. Uh, you could say maybe 10 hairs per clumping. Yeah. And that, over the course of, I guess, the, over over a decade, so uh, 13 years, over the course of 13 years now, they've slowly gone away, all except mm. one, which right. I imagine that one is permanent damage, and I may have actually had a head injury on that spot, so that, that could be a yep. separate. Um, but it is a thing that happens to quite... I think more people than they realize at young age, like you get various things. Yeah. Uh, with your, I'm going to go into the details of yours. Uh, okay. Your hair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the commentary here, I'll just put as the precursor, is that when you read around the papers, there's a whole bunch of papers saying uh, it diminishes self-esteem and things like that. Yeah, yeah. My judgment call is that that's, I could not, well, for me personally, and I was a pretty casual person yeah. and not very uh, female-seeking, let's just say, although, okay. yep. although life worked out well for me <laughs> and someone yeah. found me. But I could not give a flying fuck, uh, personally, about grey yeah. hair. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, from your perspective... What, mm -hmm. is, what is the downside? It's like, you know, it's something that you do want to slow because it, I guess, makes you look older. Is that your interest? Yeah, so complete transparency. Um, mine is just mostly around assessing, okay, is this something that is potentially uh, a bit of an indicator of something else going on? Which actually, funnily enough, we can talk about it soon. Now I've read into, there is actually a possibility. No, it's, I think it's more so about the reflection of, okay, am I managing stress well? Like, are there some lifestyle factors that I can potentially look to actually improve upon? Again, come straight back to that OCD, having to have everything kind of, you know, as perfect as possible. Um, you know, is it just a bit of like, almost like a wake up call, like a visible sign of, is there something else going on that I can, that I can seek to yeah. improve? I think from that whole vein perspective, there is probably a level to that as well, but for myself, I, I can only speak on myself, obviously, I'd say it's more so, like I say, just around kind of, is there something else going on that I could, that I can look to improve upon? Yeah, I agree. I, that's where a lot of my interest is too. It's a kind of a canary in the coal mine situation where yeah. you can visibly see it too. And mm. day to day, you could also track progress in terms yeah, exactly. of, yeah. 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 Um, which is actually quite powerful. Uh, if we so your your graying is it a scattered graying or is it a specific yeah. clumping like I had? 
Yeah, no, rel relatively scattered. So mostly I would say temporal. So right around kind of the, the almost sideburn base regions. Yep. Um, and then there's kind of just a scattering kind of from the frontal and even just a little bit kind of occipital on the back as well. Yep. But um, yeah, mostly around the sides and just like a little bit kind of here and there on the fronts and backs, I'd probably yep. say. Yeah. Which according to literature, the especially temporal uh, so yeah. sideburn area, that is one of the first areas to go for uh, at least caucasian males usually yeah. 30 and above but um there's there's other reasons we went to which do do you want to talk a little bit about the hair cycle first and then from there we could set kind of the scene of kind of growing and such um and also feel free to sub out i can talk about the, the hair cycle a bit yeah talk about so the hair cycle. i've mostly just been looking into antigen okay because yeah yeah um, well, well we'll keep it really simple anyway because most mm -hmm. people won't be too interested in the every exact detail but you've got three core phases of the hair cycle and this is according to my understanding i'll caveat that first and not a this is a good timing we're not medical practitioners we're not providing <laughs> medical advice and yeah. uh and yeah, just take take with a grain of salt, but we can point to resources that we've read and other good resources that you can look at too. Three phases of the hair cycle. Growth, uh, I guess you might call it stagnation or mm -hmm. just not doing growth, but also not doing uh, death. Uh, and then the last phase is that kind of death slash recycling sort of phase where uh a lot of waste products and such get cleaned out would you agree with that yes yeah, simple yeah. yeah uh and growth phase is usually quite a number of years for for a follicle and then you've got that few weeks it's it's usually i i think the numbers were around two to four weeks where it's in that stagnation stage and then i believe it was on the ballpark of around four weeks for the uh cell recycling and you know killing some off and harvesting and uh mm -hmm. and rebirth you could almost say rebirth sort yeah, of yeah, phase yep for so you have been looking at the antigen phase specifically which is mm -hmm. uh that is your growth phase yes, yes. uh I questioned myself right before I said it and I knew it but anyway that is the growth phase do you, well how would you describe that from your perspective like what's going on with that growth phase yeah so essentially from what i've read again neither of us are experts on here in particular but from what i've read um what we have are keratinocytes which are essentially cells obviously yielding keratin and these proliferate and differentiate up the actual hair strand yeah. themselves to i guess increase the length of that hair strand yeah. Um, so that's what, yeah, like I said, differentiate, proliferate up to increase that length there. Yeah. Yeah. And what we kind of see, and I guess the valuable part of this is that, uh, melanocytes, okay. These are the things that are producing melanin in your hair. And mm -hmm. the, the research is all very recent, uh, on specifically hair color in terms of real progress is, is yeah. my look at it. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to have really boomed after probably really boomed in the last five years 
in terms of real outcomes. And there's a whole bunch of kind of wonderings about the last 20 years. But then I think since 2019, that's where I'm seeing a massive burst of research come out. Yeah, I can agree. So the melanocytes tend to follow similar cyclical uh, processes, much like uh, the keratinocytes. 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 Uh, And that that is what they're currently drawing upon as a bit of a reference i guess you would say every new paper in terms of like if it's a year apart i'm seeing progress and understanding and so i think it will be a case that in five years we'll have extra corrections to be made but these keratinocytes are they're coming from stem cells uh in the growth phase that is is that correct? They're pro- proliferating from yep. stem cells that are kind of at the bulb. Yep. Yep. And then as as they grow, so those separate off to allow the stem cells to keep producing. And later on, those keratinocytes, that is what will be, uh, they'll go through ap- apoptosis, aka um, recycling, you could almost say. Mm-hmm. We suspect a similar thing happens with melanocytes. That is the current research. Yep. And in that growth phase, we're having the melanocyte stem cells uh, proliferate to make melanocytes. And then those melanocytes go out into the hair follicles. Yeah. Is that a good? Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can agree. Just, just, just a preface for the for the um, listeners as well. Melanocytes are essentially going to be synthesizing melanin, just relatively clear from the name, um, and that melanin is then obviously synthesized and then transferred to the adjacent, so they're just sitting next to them, keratinocytes. So that's kind of where the color is coming into the actual hair strand. So the melanocytes are creating kind of more of that pigment to then transfer adjacently to those keratinocytes, which then, you know, obviously proliferate up the hair strand. So that's kind of where that yes. color is coming from. Yeah. Yes, I appreciate you for specifying that. I probably jumped the gun a little bit, just assuming <laughs> yeah. everyone knows random uh, terminology. Uh, also, which they might re- recognize melanin from is that we have melanin in our skin and just all over where we have pigmentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so similar processes going on. When, how, how should we describe that? How does, I'll let you take this one. Mm-hmm. How does, uh, or what is the indicator of a gray hair? Like what do we what do we know about that hair when it is a gray hair? Yes, so essentially with that we've completely lost melanin in that hair. So all of the pigmentation in it. So we actually have a few different types of pigmentation. So the main two are pheomelanin and eumelanin. So pheomelanin is more so associated with your kind of blonde to kind of um, strawberry blonde base kind of pigment, and then your eumelanin is more of kind of your brown to blackish base pigment that that we have. So essentially, just to kind of say this, the the proportion of those two is going to dictate your individual like exact hair color. And obviously, that's going to come down to each of those hair strands as well from from the follicle. Now, when we see people with the kind of more 
auburn or um, reddish kind of based here. That's actually a, a, a mutation of one of the genes called MC1R. That, that's the MC1R gene. Um, and that um, obviously level of mutation is then going to dictate obviously what that hair pigment may be if you are going to be more of that kind of auburn red, red base hair color there. So to come back to your question, coming back to that gray here, it's essentially just a lack of melanin being obviously transferred over to those keratinocytes. When those keratinocytes differentiate mm. and proliferate up the hair strand, they're then gonna be lacking pigment, hence why it comes to this kind of dull shade of white, gray, whatever it's going to be, yeah. Yeah, and I guess with that grayish aspect, would that be because the darker pigment might be longer, like like harder to strip away or harder to... Yeah, so from what I've seen, I haven't yeah. seen any evidence on it, but that's the that's the closest thing I could um, kind of make that sort of uh, claim to because yeah. I, I think it's probably relatively clear, even just from anecdotes seeing people. Yeah, typically more of the blonde or lighter hair people will shift slightly to more of like a whitish color, and I think oftentimes the darker hair will shift to more of a grayish color. So I think realistically, that kind of proportion of the pheomelanin to eumelanin that will kind of dictate even though those will obviously be depleted in terms yeah. of that melanin probably that proportion of remaining kind of shade color i guess if that makes or shade yes. intensity is probably gonna kind of dictate more of that white to gray dark gray kind of yes that yeah that is the line of thought i was thinking now is is essentially communicating that often it is to, again, there, there isn't solid literature on this, and we could probably yeah. talk again in terms of study design. It would be very difficult to have a good study design, long-term study design on people yeah. with hair because hair is such a long-term thing. Like, if you wanted to study multiple cycles, yeah. then you're talking over a decade of mm -hmm. research, um, yeah. which I'd be fascinated to find out if anyone's doing that. But... Uh, the communication point is that there is likely still some melanin left in the hair if we're seeing various shades of grey, because yeah. that is how we're resulting in some colour. It's just extremely depleted. Yeah. Yeah. And then those guys with the absolute white, stark white hair, which you could get with albino populations, mm. I'm that I imagine is the absolute lack of melanin or maybe a tiny bit of the strawberry blonde but i believe albino is they have a mutation to not produce any yeah 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 i would i would i would probably um think think along the same kind of lines as that yeah again no hard literature on it we are just kind of picking at straws this here is... but i think yeah. we're both relatively on the same page with that one there with our, with our lines of thought anyway yeah yeah I enjoy a bit of speculation and um, hmm. and throwing Absolutely. ideas around because this is how we do get uh, some of the good progress and more creative lines of thought. And I will be happily called out to be a complete shit talker later if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what we're looking at when we're looking at a grey hair. We it's a hair with not much melanin in it, or our absolute white is likely to be no melanin at all, mm -hmm. and therefore. Uh, something has changed in the body that would, that would, you wouldn't say create the lack of melanin, but uh, melanin has stopped production. Uh, in that, 
I believe is since there is a 2020 paper that kind of got to the bottom of this, but that is likely to be due to the stem cells, the melanonite stem cells no longer producing those melanocytes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And from there, without the melanocytes, then you can't produce the melanin. So it kind of makes sense. We could talk about a couple mechanisms as to mm -hmm. how that uh, that process gets in, underway. Yeah. Uh, would you like to tackle stress first? Because stress is probably one of the most relevant to every Joe Bloggs, especially, I'm going to put the cue into my future thoughts, especially around times where we've had a lot of global controversy and lockdowns and uh, volatility yeah. in lifestyle. So mm -hmm. stress is an all-time high, some people would say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, really comes back to my assessment of my own lifestyle. You know, if I am kind of seeing some of these prim premature based, um, you know, hair, hair grays, then, you know, maybe I need to assess, you know, my, my stress management and stuff like that. So there, definitely a very, very topical um, point you've made there. So stress, I guess you can kind of break stress up into two kind of key pathways. So you obviously have your psychological or experienced stress, and then you have also stress in the body. So we're talking things like redox, oxidative stress, yep. stuff like that. Now they're definitely not um, mutually exclusive. You know, we do have some, some crossover there. Very clear obviously with um you know some of those endocrine and paracrine pathways mm -hmm. but what we're looking at from a psychological perspective is obviously how we're tolerating stress now just coming back to that endocrine approach there when we see releases in things like um noradrenaline and some of those uh catecholamines that are associated with obviously yep. that kind of physical stress or you know experience stress we actually see a release of um, noradrenaline going to the beta 2 adrenergic receptors which essentially are going to induce changes in that melanocyte stem cell expression so essentially just to kind of um, you know summarize that and make it a little bit more simple what we're seeing is as noradrenaline norepinephrine kind of comes to that um, melanocyte stem cell we're seeing kind of reductions in the um i guess stem cell repeating um base kind of approach there yes and a uh, simple explanation on that as just a little bit of surrounding context we do uh our nervous system is quite uh ingrained into our hair follicle system as in each hair follicle does appear to have a nervous system connection and yeah. that is why our hairs will respond according to nervous system responses such as um, increase in noradrenaline and specification just for folk noradrenaline and norepinephrine are the same uh, compound like the exact same structure for all intents and purposes so if we use it interchangeably it's the same thing um, just different naming convention yeah different naming conventions and there is a kind of stupid history as to why we're stuck with that, um, which we can talk about that another time. <laughs> but uh, now I'm distracted about Americans and English being at war. But uh, <laughs> that is that is the back background context almost of that. But on adrenaline, uh, so when we're stressed, we tend to release more adrenaline, when more or noradrenaline, and when we uh, release more of that. We have some interaction, and that 
interaction is somewhat still to be con uh, confirmed or uh, well understood, let's say, on the melanite stem cells, now nah, melanocyte stem cells, and therefore their proliferation to make melanocytes. There is also another hormone that people have a lot of association with stress. Uh, that is your cortisol. And for a long time, there was some thinking that cortisol had an interplay with uh, this melanocyte stem cell function. Uh, that, I believe, since about 2020 has been mainly... It might have actually been a 2022 paper that first um, got that out. But we're talking very recent years. That has somewhat been put to the side as unlikely to be uh, all too relevant to the discussion and much more relevant as the noradrenaline. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, That's. I think it's just important to get out the way because there is a lot of... Uh, not pseudoscience, but people trying things that is related mm. to the cortisol pathway. Yeah. And cortisol and adrenaline are related, and cortisol also influences other things, like we've got into play with testosterone and other hormones going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But uh, it's. I think it's important to somewhat say that right now, looking at cortisol is probably not all too valuable. And what you'd want to focus more on regarding the stress is that noradrenaline mechanism. Yep. Yeah. I think, I think yep. even just going back to the cortisol um, point as well, that we see a almost circadian rhythm like approach with, with cortisol as well um, with, with the release of that, you know, we're seeing um, higher cortisol in certain periods of time of the day and then drop offs in, in other periods um, of the day. And that is just literally natural, you know, from a, from a day to day, hour to hour perspective, you know, so if we did see that as a very clear, you know, R1 based correlation, it would be pretty difficult to even extrapolate then because an increase in say serum cortisol, if you were to get that tested through blood work would then probably not be an accurate indicator of hair graying anyway, if that was going to be something you were yeah. to test for. Um, so I think that is just another kind of um, point just to kind of preface that with. Yeah, so simply put, if you are trying to use cortisol to analyze a trend in anything, then you would need to be doing a lot of testing of your cortisol over the yeah. course of a day. Yeah, um, more of a long It's very much but, like, but, yeah. yeah, much like blood pressure testing, you could say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where you've also got massive variance, so you need to collect a lot of data. Um, mm. So... Uh, do you have any further comment on how that noradrenaline affects the melanocytes? I have one that seems to be slightly speculating uh, in oh, the paper. If, if you want to go but, with that, and then I've got one yep. little additional comment just around the stress okay. mechanism, but not so much around the noradrenaline. So if you want to continue continue on along yep. that noradrenaline yep. pathway. Yep. So one recent paper, I believe is a 2023, and I, we can link a bunch of these down later, but that specified or it didn't specify it inclined that uh, noradrenaline was promoting melanocyte proliferation uh, or yeah. so the melanocyte stem cell to create melanocytes but mm -hmm. uh, excessively high adrenaline so it's stimulate, stimulating the making of more and uh, actually such in a almost 
it's what's a good analogy but it's like in a rapid growth sort of way it's like it's if, if you have a chronically high then it's just pumping and pumping and pumping and ignoring mm-hmm. the fact that this is not it doesn't need more melanin this is yeah. it's not in a good state to keep doing that and that is part of their theory as to where we get damage to the actual stem cell yeah, and right. therefore that stops future uh, melanocyte being produced because you don't have as many stem cells and then if you deplete all your stem cells then you yeah. don't then you can't produce any yeah cool and just so, following up quickly immediately from that um as part of that antigen or growth phase we do see very very high levels of uh reactive oxygen species just in that local area so a lot of kind of oxidative stress just in that local kind of area so just to kind of follow up basically exactly along with that one we also see some melanocyte stem cell depletion literally just through some oxidative stress mechanisms there so kind of coming back to that stress coming at it more from uh like a redox based perspective it does kind of make sense to be supporting some of those um antioxidant based pathways um as well yeah yeah and i suppose that could actually interplay quite well so whenever we have uh any sort of uh say manufacturing or so chemical processes Mm -hmm. then you will generally have uh oxidative byproducts uh, is common and it's pretty hard to have a very clean i couldn't think off the cup of one process as a completely clean outcome so if we have massively ramped up production then that would translate to ramped up oxidative stress in that local area and i think that's that's a key thing especially with your background looking at oxidative stress Mm. oxidative stress is very much local issues because they're they're highly uh, reactive particles uh, and therefore they they don't go far before they bounce into something that they're going yeah. to react with and yeah. often in the form of changing the shape a bit and which then decreases uh function due to st- structural changes because things yeah. want to um things want to be the way they are i guess you could say <laughs> yeah. simply yeah <laughs> um yeah so uh in a speculative manner those two mechanisms could play well into each other uh mm. where the noradrenaline is causing ramp up in production in an unsustainable way and that increase in production res- is resulting in more byproducts however there is not data to yet confirm that yeah yeah um yeah support's a better word actually because nothing is confirmed but uh do you have anything else to follow on that stress line of thought um the only other kind of contributing factor to some of that stress just going back to again that kind of oxidative pathway would be down to um the tyrosinase i'm not sure if you've had a look into um any of that in in relation to the stress small amount i couldn't comment too much okay sweet yeah so essentially with that with that tyrosinase um we're looking at that um catalyzing the production of the melanin so you know, primarily that um, eumelanin, pheomelanin, um, from tyrosine via kind of that oxidation-based pathway. So, yeah, very, very enzymatic-based process, hence the A's, um, yeah, from tyrosine um, and really just synthesizing that melanin. Yeah, so 
one of the um one of the interesting things leading into potentially another um point which we'll probably snowball into is yep. um that is very very uh copper dependent um based on yep. some of the cofactors and stuff like that um so yeah again that can that can potentially nicely lead us into some of the nutritional based you know typical deficiencies and some cofactor based stuff as well but yeah definitely just something we wanted to add into big part of that oxidative stress is down to um, that that tyrosinase reaction I'm going to ask what may seem like a simple question here, but just for clarity. So are you saying that tyrosine is a precursor, like it is an important building block to uh, creating yeah, yeah. Uh, melanin? From what I've read currently, that would make a lot of sense. Yes. Yeah. 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 That lines up with my reading too, but I just want to specify that out. So tyrosine, uh, other people might be familiar with it from the dopamine pathway. It is actually just the catecholamine pathway overall. But uh, to lay that out really quickly, you uh, you actually have phenylethylalanine, phenyl- phenylalanine, which yeah. is the precursor. Phenylalanine. Yeah, phenylalanine, not phenylethylalanine. Anyway, phenylalanine, which is the precursor to tyrosine. Tyrosine is the precursor to our dopa. At that point, usually that's going on in the nervous system. Uh, ideally, you don't actually want much L-dopa in your uh, peripheral nervous system. More in the central is ideal, I guess we could say. Um, and then that L-dopa converts to dopamine, which everyone might be familiar with from that, uh, you could say, reward and pursuit type behaviors. Uh, hmm. it's a little bit more complicated and it has a very situational. Uh, it also has massive interplays with muscular function and like control and all sorts. But that then follows on to uh, your noradrenaline, adrenaline. So all of these things are in the same pathway, but they can be used elsewhere. And in this case, tyrosine appears to also be used as a precursor to um, melanin. Hmm. Correct along those lines. Yep. 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 No. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's good when I'm spitting a lot of things out there really quick. Sometimes things do get fuddled. So I do feel like you can be like, no, you're talking shit. Um, <laughs> so down that, uh, other precursors other than tyrosine, which is unlikely to be something that you have not enough of. To be frank, mm. like uh, assuming someone has a good protein diet, uh, that's unlikely to be a component. That's the rate limiting component. Yeah, we are seeing other components maybe uh, deficient in people with premature growing hair. Mm-hmm. Do you want to jump into those? Uh, yeah, so it's actually very kind of not conflictual. There's definitely some crossover, but. Basically, from from the research papers I've read, some things say some things, and some things say the complete opposite. So, I would say probably the consistent ones that we're seeing is going to be your copper status, iron status, B12 in particular, 
and then as more of a um, some sort of association but maybe not 100% we're looking at things like vitamin D zinc status calcium and then also as a quite a quite a random one but we do see it in people often with premature hair graying is going to be your high density lipoprotein so your HDL or good cholesterol and I kind of preface that because it's more about the oxidation mm. of cholesterols but yes yeah 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 at a simple level people would hear it as the good cholesterol um yeah and that that is a conversation we can have in the future <laughs> um uh that is worth a note so there's a number of different uh minerals and just essential nutrients we could say involved there there is definitely conflicting evidence uh i've seen a bunch of correlatory evidence saying that it's zinc that we should be focusing on mm -hmm. and don't worry about copper. And then I've seen papers that say the opposite. Which stands out the most to you? That would be the, from a personal level, when you've read around, which do you think, hey, this is actually the one I should focus on? Based on what I've read, there, there's probably three, because from a mechanistic perspective, there's current literature to support they actually have a pretty direct role. So ferritin, um, or the protein bound essentially iron, if you think about it when, when you're looking at it um, through blood work, um, it's iron, iron is definitely going to be um, directly affecting the actual melanogenesis. So um, that, that kind of proliferation of melanocytes. Um, so that that's obviously going to be a pivotal one in terms of if they are going to be uh, if they are going to be broken down, you know, those, those melanocyte stem cells um, to be kind of supporting the uh, at least maintenance or, you know, kind of growth in numbers. So that's probably the first one um, I'd see. We're also looking at um, vitamin B12 um, as being a cofactor in that antigen phase, so hair growth phase stabilization. Now, from what I've read, uh, a little bit of um, destabilization right around the hair bulb can create essentially a lot of depletion in melanocyte stem cells so yeah definitely get maybe b12 checked again especially if you're kind of um you know on, on a diet which is a little bit restrictive with some of those good quality um you know animal-based meats as well that is quite often a deficiency that we will see those two you know iron and also the b12 um and then probably the final one is it's a little bit of kind of like a a, a mix up between kind of the zinc and copper status because we do know that the higher intakes of zinc the more you will actually be depleting copper and also vice versa the higher copper status you have oftentimes the lower zinc they, they almost kind of compete so it's kind of a um a, a, a homeostasis or or kind of like even keel level between those two that i'd probably just get checked to make sure we're not seeing a really aggressive kind of seesaw approach of one being super high and the other being depleted and that's honestly my best probably prediction why you've seen a little bit of conflict between those two that this is um the yeah. one don't worry about copper or this one here you know zinc you know so on and so forth kind of like with with those two yeah these were just correlatory studies anyway too yeah. so and like so that's always a good thing to just consider is like this they're they're not indicating cause or not a proof of cause sort of mm. chain it's hey, here is an outcome where they uh, talk and study protocol that brought in a bunch of people with gray hair and brought in a bunch of people without gray hair and we're talking yeah. premature growing hair. So that's usually characterized as under 30 
uh, some even I've seen multiple definitions. Some say under 25 and some saying under 30 year olds. Um, yeah. The main one that I've seen is um, like quantified as under 20 years old. So you're seeing 20 or more hair strands under 20 for Caucasians, 20 or more hair strands in under 25s for Asian populations and under 30 in um, African-American populations. So kind of 20, yeah. 25 and 30 for Caucasian, Asian and African-American. Yeah. Yeah respectively that that's that's the probably the primary relatively um recognized definition that yeah I've seen. agreed yeah. upon yeah. yeah 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 and that's also a good specification too is that there is definitions uh or distinctions between different uh genetic backgrounds because that will lead to um well different outcomes as standard um we are a compilation of our genetics and environmental factors uh with that you could say so let's let's just rephrase it a little bit around so we've got essential minerals that are indicating that if they're depleted then they would reflect poorly upon hair status and right now it's somewhat to be confirmed but it sounds like you are leaning towards you just want things to be within the normal healthy range and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. You know, if in doubt, always check through a quantitative analysis. So, yeah. very, very big push towards blood work if it is actually something that's of importance to you, rather than just going on a willy nilly. I'll buy some copper, I'll buy some zinc, and just hit it with a kitchen sink approach, um, which yeah. a lot of people do. Um, yeah, definitely. Just want to kind of preface that with with that. Comment. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a simple case of if you are invested in creating a good outcome and you're serious yeah. about that investment then for sure get blood work done because that gives you yeah a more quantitative and more of a picture it's definitely not the whole picture but it at least shows you some of your starting picture and Absolutely. then if you are just feeling like playing around and you don't mind if you're not making progress or stuff like that and you just want to see what feels right personally i think that is a completely acceptable approach too but don't complain when you're not getting results yeah, yeah. because like it's, it's a standard case of you do what you want with your life but uh if you actually want outcomes i think you could agree with this on the training side like if you actually yeah. want outcomes there are yeah. things that uh, you just do because you can track it and you can measure progress yep yep 100% those, those are probably the two main words i would use trackable measurable those two need to be nailed on the head especially yeah. when it comes to training like you're saying like everything needs to actually some people are like oh, i haven't made any progress i'm like all right how many sessions have you completed over the last month what's your progress been in terms of volume um you know load what are your progressions that oh, i haven't really been tracking stuff well don't yeah. complain to me if you haven't made progress then yeah. because you've given yourself no reason to actually know what progress even is yes uh it's if if you don't have uh, any data to make a call upon then yeah that's yeah uh, you're not even in the conversation at that point is the way i view it um but everyone is free to live their life however they like and i am Absolutely. always in favor of that so i think it's a no-brainer uh if you have premature growing one of the first port of calls would be just to get a like get some blood work done get a little bit of insight um assuming that you're invested in trying to improve it it's not too mm -hmm. expensive and 
then the next steps would be if something seems out of range uh, or on the lower side, then perhaps supplementation or altering dietary input in any manner uh, and seeing if you can get improvement there. And then from there, you're likely helping many other functions outside of just graying hair. Like if you have low zinc or low copper, there is many other implications, not just hair graying. Uh, and yeah. so that's that's a good canary in the coal mine, helping people uh, say, oh, we've got something going wrong there. Let's fix it. If the hair gets fixed or not, other things in their life is improved anyway. Um, yeah. So really good win-wins there. Is there any other important notes that you would have on that um, important uh, constituents or important minerals or inputs for hair? I think, like from my perspective, that's reasonably well covered. But yeah, no, I I, th- I think I agree. I think we've covered um, a good kind of majority. Obviously, one of the one of the kind of stress related components. Um, talking a little bit about tyrosinase, um, as well as some of the cofactors and requirements of that. There, you know, we're talking um, some dopamine, some you know nor norepinephrine based um, approaches, and then obviously just with that um, melanocyte stem cell, um, you know, regeneration stuff like that, looking to support that kind of along that pathway. I think if I was to kind of take the lead here for a second, I'd love to kind of approach you and um, almost get a bit of an idea around what what your the cave nutrition shortly going to be strong sports. Um, yeah. What what your kind of uh, stack would be? Because obviously I'm having a little play around with the fundamentum, primarily looking around some of that redox, um, even a little bit of like autophagy based stuff with with some of the spermidine, the N, uh, the NMN, um, as well as you know obviously supporting with things like you know glutathione, N-acetylcysteine, yeah. and kind of you know combating it like that. I'd, I'd love to hear kind of a a little. Based on what we know, again, it's it's going to be very speculative. But what your what your based what your approach would be? Yeah. Right off the cuff, I am still highly conflicted about what my yeah. stack would be. Uh, I think the the very first step, if someone came to me and they said, "I want to solve this, and I want to solve this with a supplemental approach," then I would be saying blood work first and mm-hmm. first Absolutely. protocol, trying to solve that uh any mineral imbalance type things because that seems like the lowest hanging fruit in that sense yes and then then we can start to really have fun i think playing with different angles considering what my perspective is is that the noradrenaline pathway seems to be one of the most plausible and better supported uh root causes and i'm always looking for root causes good, good puns there thomas um always <laughs> always looking for root causes and so i would say it might even be a first part of check your lifestyle uh before supplements so do you have mismanaged stress is your stress stress that you uh are taking on with a uh it's an intent i guess so uh to bring an example of this is we're both business owners and both like reasonably you know it's it's in the you'd very confidently stay it's in the settling or early-ish stages of business where you're doing a lot of building 
and mm-hmm. growth type activities. Um, we're we're in this funny stage ourselves because like the business is five years in, I would still say in an aggressively growth type stage, but mm-hmm. I think it will be that way for another decade. Uh, and so when I think about uh, managing stress around a input where I'm like, okay, I'm going to be managing something that will is essentially a chaos machine where it's outputting momentary bursts of stress all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. We need to have a tactic or a, a plan of approach about managing that. That's what mm-hmm. I think. And then yeah. on the stress side too, so I've got that chosen business stress, which is a uh, it's a trade-off that I've acknowledged and taken in. What are the other stresses going on in my life though? Uh, is there stresses that do not have positive trade-offs? Because it's worth it for the business, but if every other thing, like if I'm, for example, if I'm not looking after my family appropriately or I'm not playing my role in my family appropriately, yeah. then that's going to create its own stress ball machine. And yeah. that there's no good reason for that. That is not something to uh, say, yeah, I, uh, there's a good trade-off there and I'm going to yeah. continue doing that for 10 years. Mm. And so on that behavioral side, I'm almost sounding like human here. Uh, on the behavioral side, like tackle that first uh, because that that allows you just to kind of get a frame of your life. And so yep. me personally, someone who is under a high load of stress, and my outburst of graying hairs when I was young was actually strongly correlated with an intensive stress period of my life. Um, And I have a generally high-running sympathetic nervous system, you'd say, which relates, like, that brings on downstream issues with blood pressure and all sorts, Mm -hmm. which was conveniently also identified at, the same point in my life um unfortunately that was from stresses that i were outside of my control to manage yeah yeah but it's it's identify what you can control and control that 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 is what it's and and what is good and what is not and so uh i'll I'll finish this one last stress rant on it's it's almost like the stoicism Types, you know, your Marcus Aurelius, your Seneca types of uh, identify the things, control what you can control, and choose your trade offs. And then from there, hopefully, you're going to have some sort of situation of family and social and um, and long term kind of your base foundation of what life is. Those stresses will be hopefully reduced. Mm. And then you have good stimulus stresses like bodybuilding goals to get on stage. That's obviously a massive stress, but yeah. we can, that that's a chosen stress. And you could say at any time, you know what, this isn't worth it. Yeah. yeah. Would you yeah, kind totally. of agree yeah. with that? We're on a bit of a yeah. tangent here. Yeah. yeah, no, no, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I totally think, um, I, I say it always to my clients as well, control the controllables and almost kind of damage control what you can with the things that are that are a little bit out of your control. So plan as best you possibly can. Like you're trying to make as many 
you know, variables as you can. Like you want to make as many of those as you can controllable, control those, you know, accommodate for them, plan for them. And then the other things around here, it's just simply a part of life. You just kind of have to almost stress manage those as best you possibly can. I think that's the best kind of summary for it. Yeah. And then now directly talking on to supplementation protocols. So now you've got stresses that you've chosen to take on, but maybe they've spiked uh, out of out of in a desirable range or mm. uh, uh, they're going for too long. So the area under the curve, if we're thinking about the stress, you got your yeah. height of stress and then duration. And yeah. if we've got a very large area, then this isn't starting to not, this is looking not very good on the biology mm. standpoint and yeah. probably mental health standpoint. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say with that, We've got a few pots of call. We've got things like stimulants that we would think about reducing yep. uh, because that is playing into our sympathetic pathway. So if we can reduce our stimulants, then hopefully that will help to reduce that sympathetic pathway. If someone yep. came to me and they said, I've started graying rapidly in the last couple months and I've also been on an aggressive cut for uh, a number of weeks prior because there's a bit of a delay in hair yep. response. Yep. And part of that cut involved massive stimulant intake using <sighs> things like your himbine, which are directly working on adrenaline pathways. Then yep. I'm just going to be like, well, this is a no-brainer. Um, reduce stimulant intake and or ideally and, but... or. Or at, at the very least, reducing the stimulants. And then the other thing would be introducing other things to help control stress, which would be things like ashwagandha, phosphatidylserine. I'm a big fan of because that phosphatidylserine is also just really good for long-term brain health. Um, yep. Long-term consistent use of lion's mane is another one that really good for brain health and that overplays into helping to manage stress better. Um, yeah. I'd emphasize on long-term consistent use though and proper dosing. Uh, it's not as easy and quick feedback as a low-hanging fruit like ashwagandha. And then actually before I jump on to classic anti-aging types and antioxidant types, do you have any comments around that sort of grouping of stress control supplements? No, honestly, just from my own personal experience, and I, I um, used to dabble in the KSM-66 ashwagandha, must be, must be a little while ago now, but um, I noticed that um, almost anhedonic feeling of, you know, just general feelings of emotion just kind of dissipating a little bit. So I'd love to hear some like similar MOAs you know, similar, similar supplements with, you know, similar kind of MOAs, because I found it very, very good in terms of that general kind of reduction in anxiety, reduction in stress. So like even, I don't know, potentially like theanine and stuff like that, just like any, anything you can kind of fire away, because I found for me that the, the risk reward ratio um, of like an ashwagandha for me was just not so good. Like the, the trade-off wasn't quite as, I, I got the benefit from that, but it almost was offset by that lack of actual enjoyment, that lack of just general kind of feeling. So I just haven't taken yes. it since. Yeah, that's that's good commentary. I would say the 
consideration around ashwagandha that we always like to talk with people if we get a chance. Um, we're very quick to talk to people, but sometimes customers want to just get in and out and they don't want mm -hmm. real uh, thinking about their supplements for some ridiculous reason, which is not well thought through considering they're taking them all day, every day, affecting their biology through their whole life. But that's fine. Um, <laughs> things that we like to check on is, do you, are you someone that is prone to feeling flat in the first place? Uh, and mm. maybe a little bit um, desensitized or uh, there is a good word for it but essentially like you're walking around in a world and there's a bubble around you between yourself and other people yeah um, if you are someone that is prone to that in the first place then ashwagandha may not be the best choice in the sense that it might amplify that effect i have had stages in life where i've been prone to that However, as a general rule, I respond extremely well to ashwagandha because mm. at least for the last half decade, um, I am very easily able to feel kind of in touch with the world around me, um, which is super hippie cliche. <laughs> but so if we did not want ashwagandha because of that reason so basically if you take an ashwagandha watch for your behavioral outcomes and this is what we say with all supplements just like keep an eye on yourself um that's it's a very important consideration is just keep an eye on your mood things like journaling much like you do with bodybuilding uh, and it doesn't have to be a story about I felt sad today, etc. It could just literally be, how is my mood, plus plus, or is it negative, yeah. or is it flat? Things like that would be a good indicator on how you're responding to herbs like ashwagandha. If we cannot pick ashwagandha, I would look for things that will not be as potent in the acute effect uh, in terms of short-term usage. But yeah, Lion's Main Plus... Uh, well, sorry, Lion's Mane uh, in itself. Plug. That <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah, the the accidental product plug. Uh, we have a product called Lion's Mane Plus, but it's not just Lion's Mane. And this is a good moment because so many people don't read the supplement facts panel on yeah. that product, and they yeah. do think it's just Lion's Mane, and we're advertising mm -hmm. that helps with focus. The, the helping with focus and clarity side is other ingredients, Lion's yeah. mane, on my stance, is not something that is super acutely noticeable. At best, and I'm being extremely generous here, uh, I would believe someone after a week of consistent high-dose usage, we're talking like well above a gram, wow. at least one and a half to two grams, that's when I'll start to believe that maybe they could notice lion's mane within a week. Yeah. That's uh, people can take that how they like, but Lion's Mane is fairly subtle, it's working on long term um, things. And one of those long term things, uh, specifically the nerve growth factor and brain derived neurotrophic factor, helping with essentially nervous system maintenance and health, that seems to have a good correlation play over to also just managing stress better. And that's where we get some good well-being benefits of Lion's Mane. Phosphatidylserine, down very much of a similar line, but it has much more of an acute feel. 
I like to see phosphorylserine with like sleep stacks because he can. Yep. I I've, I've used it as a standalone. There can be a nice calming feel. Uh, high dosing required though, and look for your actual stand like the actual dose of phosphatidylserine in it because usually phosphatidylserine will come from a uh, soy lecithin extract and mm. often let's, let's just say if the percentage of phosphatidylserine isn't specified then i wouldn't use that supplement somewhat there's caveats because we've got brands that don't specify it but i know from the personal side uh i know from the personal side talking to the manufacturers and companies or seeing paperwork that mm. the phosphate serine dosage is all good um as a note your video is cut out oh it has is mine cut out at record uh, you've just blanked but no it's fine on my end yeah Okay, yeah, it's just saying live video will return when their internet improves. Um, ah. We can chop this quickly, but I, I can, we can keep going anyway. Okay. Um, so, so phosphatidylserine uh, is a valuable one in that sense where we're helping with long-term brain health and we know it has a good anti-anxiety effect. And it is, in terms of the evidence on long-term brain health side is really good such that um in the eu and new zealand and australia which are hard countries to be able to make claims in um we're allowed to say phosphatidylserine is useful for the prevention of cognitive decline uh for or for you know supporting it's not going to stop cognitive decline entirely but it does slow that down L-theanine is nice, but it's quite mild. And so that's good for the anti-stress. But if you want to really feel L-theanine, I would generally state doses more like 400 megs and above. Whilst yep. 200 megs is quite a subtle influence. Yep. You've used L-theanine a bit, have you? Yeah, I found almost that exact thing myself, that 200 milligram didn't do a lot, like maybe very subtle. And then as soon as I kind of went for the double the double dosage, I was like, this actually has quite a noticeable effect kind of on actually kind of yeah. calming me down, slowing me down a little bit. So definitely agree. I think part of that, and because I've used L-theanine for so many years in different life stages and situations, I'd say part of it is just, based off your overall level of lifestyle stimulus. And if you are generally pretty stimulated, then it makes sense that uh, it's going to take a bit more to kind of push over that level. Yeah. Um, The... It makes sense mechanistically too, because essentially L-theanine works in a manner where it binds to receptors not to directly calm you, but to prevent stimulation. So it's binding in a way such that the stimulants don't bind and stimulant, stimulate okay. you uh, at a very high level description view. Um, there's also a lot of conflicting literature on L-theanine because essentially uh, it's tangent, but uh, there's two lines of thoughts, uh, research in Japan-centric and research in American-centric, and then... Mm-hmm. Japan made a really good breakthrough at one point 
and half of America seemed to acknowledge that breakthrough and then they built off each other and kept going. And then yep. there's just a whole bunch of universities and people out there that apparently have not seen this literature and they're still <laughs> just like, it's like they're waiting around in the marsh going like, yeah, yeah, we're not entirely sure what's going on here and so <laughs> forth. It's like, no, we know this is going on for sure. You need to look at that at the very least or at least acknowledge it. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Althenian is good, but it's, I'd just say the mainstream is talking about 200 milligram dosing and there's a lot of, because there's some research pairing like 200 milligrams with 100 milligram of caffeine and getting a good performance yeah, outcome. Right. Yeah. Yep. But that's a performance outcome, not mm, yeah. a calming outcome. Yeah. And so... Yeah, 400 milligrams plus. We even have OJ, uh, who works at the store. We have what mm. we call like the floating dose, which is 800 milligrams plus, where, yeah, you start to feel a little bit like a, a Zen Buddhist monk levitating. Yeah. Like, it, it's a mm. unique feeling. It's it's kind of yeah. different to just being calm, but uh, mm. alters sensory awareness, you could say. Um but tolerance seems to build if you do that consistently. So it's not a I valuable... I have to experiment, I'll be honest. Yeah. One thing I can encourage with L-theanine is that you've got a massive dosing window of safety. I've, yeah. yeah. I personally, not a medical practitioner or recommending this, but I personally have very little concern if someone was even dosing a couple of grams. Just right. keep in mind... Uh, set and setting, aka, do you have things to do later in that day that you need to be quite alert for? Then maybe don't play around with an unknown dose of yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I've done as high as two grams. Well, no, I've done many grams of L-theanine. I've actually probably done more in a ballpark of three, three and a half grams just for science. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, but that shows the, I guess, uh, at least acute safety window of nothing horrible yeah. happens yeah. Uh, at those doses. But you also have a notable kind of fall-off effect of um, diminishing returns. So yeah. uh, start at 400 milligrams, play around up. As soon as you're going over a gram, I think there starts, uh, you're just kind of starting to... Uh, pour theanine down your throat at this point you're not actually achieving too much extra um, yep. and if you want a more potent effect then other tools like the ashwagandha and phosphatidylserine is good for that stress management yeah cool those would be my bunch magnesium three and eight probably another one and yeah and that's just like theanine and in terms of mechanistics or in terms of actions uh, what we know in terms of how it works in the brain is very similar as well. In some ways, I prefer it because magnesium is also a nutrient. Um, so yeah. we, so there's kind of assisting nutrient status and you have that acute function. But, Such um, an important cofactor in so many pathways as well. Yes. Uh, that will also play into other ways to help with stress management. Yeah. So that is probably 10 minutes on me talking about stress management supplementation uh is <laughs> a big can of worms but those are the low hanging ones that i would look at yeah 
then we could talk. So antioxidant status. You're taking a number of anti. Well, you're taking glutathione max for sure. Yeah, glutathione max and just uh, uh, cysteine. Yep. Yeah. Those are my two primaries. Uh, also so, taking ubiquinol. Okay. Yeah. When it comes to supplementation of antioxidant type uh, in that category where we're trying to work on uh, improving redox balance, we could simply say, uh, because mm -hmm. it's a little bit more complicated than just antioxidants. But yeah. like straight antioxidants, often most of which is getting utilized in our liver. If, you, if you're orally ingesting any, and even if you're intravenous or intramuscular, then uh, I would still expect a massive proportion of that to be utilized in the liver where most of our uh, oxidative reactions are undergoing anyway, because that is yeah. like one of our, that's a primary uh, site for uh, clearing of, I don't like the word toxins, but because there's too many other people use the word, but it is technically correct. It's also clearing a bunch of other stuff that could be useful though. And that's also uh, worth a note. Like the liver is a clearer of compounds, toxins mm -hmm. and beneficial compounds. Yep. Um, we just like it when it clears the toxins because they are harmful. So when we're taking things like N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glutathione, and glutathione is one of our primary antioxidants in the body. Mm -hmm. I just take that with the consideration that a lot of it is going to be sapped up in that sponge of the liver. And I have uh, low confidence that it will reach the site of, a, of your specific interest, and that could be anything for someone say they have issues mm -hmm. on their toe or their head unless i see literature specifically showing that then i i don't have the biggest confidence that it's the biggest lever to okay. to work on that yeah. but that's the issue with all antioxidant type supplementation uh mm. there is however you have things like um Ikerin, which uh, Ekerin is a compound that you will primarily find in Epimedium, aka horny goat weed, which influences antioxidant functions notably. Uh, it's also specified astioside, which is found in Sustanch tuberosa, um, and heaps of other plants, astioside's in heaps. But those can influence superoxide dismutase, uh, which is an enzyme which facilitates antioxidant reactions. And when we have that, we can start to see more targeted applications of reducing oxidative stress because different areas in the body might respond differently to that increase in superoxide dismutase. So that's why we can be confident in astioside as being a valuable lever for improving oxidative status in the brain. Um, mm -hmm and conveniently in the testes and the same with Icar and its testes also, but they also both do a ton in the liver. And so, yeah. um, with, so with glutathione, with N-acetylcysteine, I wouldn't say it's wasted, uh, necessarily, 
I just wouldn't put all of my eggs in that basket. Yeah, it's it's not the strongest lever of return, but then yep. there is also considerations of what other things are you doing in life that you're kind of happy to have that go on your liver because mm. I might sound like I'm really hating on the fact that these are getting mainly used in the liver, but if your liver's running well and cleaning everything and that's performing mm-hmm. well, then that will have downstream effects too, yep. which could then downstream effects help with, say, hair graying or other things like cognitive function. Um, yep. But we just don't have the evidence for individual things yet. Is that... I feel like yeah, you've, you're probably well aware of this beforehand. Is that someone in line with what you were thinking? Yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I just, I love glutathione mix. And oh, I'm, same. Yeah. yeah, a big fan I have it on of it. Constant restock, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's mm. just, I do like to make clear to people that it's not necessarily what, uh, or glutathione, because it's maybe a little bit more trendy at the moment. There's a lot of bullshit advertising, quite simply. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh just consider it's it's not the it's not the most potent lever to push on mm-hmm. um the next full on was nmn uh or are you yeah. taking the full because uh, you just recently um, snagged it didn't you fundamentum yeah yeah i got fundamentum yeah, yeah which obviously only has 500 milligrams of the fundamentum but yeah it does have obviously enamine spermidine yeah. um a few, few other fun things um i don't, yeah. I don't know how you say it. is it is it facetin f- how do you uh, say that fisit- uh i well i say facetin i i'm yeah. not a good uh judgment call. <laughs> yeah the challenge is is that i learn all i mainly learn pronunciation just from reading, reading. and yeah. then other people who may have also just learned it from reading and then half yeah. the time it's like an american or something and so yeah um i don't think it matters it's fisetin yeah. it's f-i-s-e-t-i-n i believe is yeah. the uh spelling and that's a really cool compound it's actually very similar in structure to kerosetin and apigenin uh however it has overlapping mechanisms but it's not exactly the same um obviously Mm -hmm. um that i i love that stack um i've been so excited for that for ages it took a little longer to come out than was initially expected but it seems to have been received really well overseas too um Hmm. how how long have you been on it now uh i've probably been running it for i'd say nine nine or ten days it must be at this point um just a just a two cap daily serve just first thing in the morning and were you on nmn prior or in our pretty much down that kind of autophagy based route was very very minimal yeah have you had any anything that you can acutely notice um at this point as of yet um i'm very much big on introducing compounds on their own which i've not done with this so i'd prefer not to uh, kind of comment on that it could be comment. a whole host of things you know lifestyle change everything so for the meantime nothing yep. cute that i can notice you know um directly yep. from that as of yep. yet but yeah nothing so but that's that is a good commentary in itself nothing profound at this point and 
according to those dosings and according to your age, uh, I, that is in line with what I would expect. Yep. Somewhat, we do have hyper and non-hyper responder uh, at that NMN dose for first time. Mm. I view, uh, so NMN is a precursor to NAD and NAD is kind of like, think of it a bit like ATP for those that are familiar in the sense that it facilitates on many different um, many different uh, not levers, I'm saying levers too much, uh, many different reactions in your body. And uh, it's actually an important cofactor to make ATP and other things. But essentially, it's a fuel for certain enzymes. And then those enzymes can do their thing when they have that fuel available. Mm-hmm. As we age, our naturally occurring in a NAD decreases at our ages. It should be pretty good. Um, however, pretty good is not to say it couldn't be better or yeah. it couldn't. Yeah. And yeah. I should yeah. actually be cautious around wording on better or not. <laughs> it couldn't be more. Yeah. Um, mm. Until we have long term research, I, we don't really know the implication of supplemental, like endogenous NAD precursors taken in a bunch when we're young people yet because it's a very new thing but Mm -hmm. what we do see is that people that sustain higher nad levels into their older age they seem to uh have less aging impacts yeah nad does have an influence on hair growth i believe via one of the enzymes the sirtuin one pathway i think uh there is so there is a whole bunch of anecdotal and a whole bunch of people pulling at hairs. Ah, again, um, pulling at hairs. Pulling hairs or... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, probably pulling gray hairs to tell themselves me, it's yeah. working. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, we do have a lot of people saying that taking in NAD precursors does help diminish graying of hairs, and some claiming. And I'm really emphasizing this is anecdotal reporting from people on the internet who we do not know who likely have a multitude of unmanaged lifestyle factors. And when they're introducing something as expensive as a NAD precursor and as niche as a NAD precursor, certainly until recently, just this last few months, NAD precursors are getting really big. Um, Yeah. But. If someone has gone to that effort of doing that, they're probably doing a bunch of other lifestyle factors, like things that would help with health and decreasing stress. Yep. So all that caveat, uh, some people do think it helps with reducing the graying of hairs, and you do have statements uh, from uh, polarizing figures such as David Sinclair that does think that it's an encouraging... um, encouraging mechanism and there is some pause because what we didn't talk about too much is that melanocyte stem cells they they can move around a bit depending on phases and one very recent i i think it's late 2020 no it's, it's early 2023 the year that we're in paper uh I think it was released last month. They were talking about a mechanism where 
some of the reason melanocyte stem cells are dying early or they're becoming non-functional early is because mm-hmm. they get stuck in a moving process. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Have Have you seen that research? I did see that. Yeah. 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 I didn't realize and it was from some um, I didn't realize it was from this year, which is very poor from the from the educational background oh, myself. Yeah. But yeah. No. It is it is super recent. And so no. uh, it's like one paper, it's early research. There was a supporting animal. Uh actually this was all non human research, yeah. I believe, yeah. and is based off animal research. But um yeah, those is essentially showing that they kind of get the the press buzzword is that they get stuck and therefore and they cease function because they're not um operating as normal mm-hmm. there is some people implying that sirto and one functions would assist in that and i'm not sure on the direct mechanism as to why but if mm-hmm. you are taking in more nad precursors then that essentially it makes more of that fuel available for Serto and one and uh, just because we've got all these other, I uh, think, engines that are using that fuel, and then Serto and one is one of those engines that if everything else needs or wants the fuel, then Serto and one gets proportionally much less. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I imagine that will lead on to a number. It'll be genetic influences that that's modifying. And that is also what we see uh, with the melanocyte stem cell functions is that, um, for example, one paper talking about the adrenaline impact was also specifying that there, if there is another enzyme present and active, at the time, then that can actually um, put more of a hamper on that crazy proliferation that will happen under the noradrenaline situation, yeah. and so therefore protecting protecting those um, melanocyte stem cells. And that that is probably that on the full supplement stack. Yeah. Do you have commentary? <laughs> Mm, I don't think so. No, I went pretty long lecturing mode on that. I apologize, but uh, no, 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 you're, but, yeah, you're all good. Yeah, I think um, I think even from like nutritional deficiencies, um, obviously looking at some of that um, NAD um, related stuff there as well as obviously supporting you know redox and stuff like that. I think those, to be fair, we can probably both agree are the three kind of pillars of from what we know at least, kind of attacking the significant in the butt as best we can. Obviously, there's going to be genetic factors, which, you know, is going to um, vary from individual to individual, but it's kind of, that's the best kind of effort that we, that well, that's, that's the best kind of knowledge and kind yeah. of um, practical application that we have at this point in time until we kind of have future studies to, um, you know, support, refute, um, you know, just give us more information around the topic. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, if we were to summarize that whole, like, how how we would view uh, tackling, you have gray hairs, the summary of the approaches to do that would be, and this is for people specifically trying to solve outcomes, not just daddle around, uh, get blood work done, mm-hmm. assess 
lifestyle and manage stresses as optimally like ideally you'd have the pretty much just a homeostatic or yeah a little bit of stress to help with various lifestyle things but not a crazy amount Mm -hmm. um and then targeted supplementation according to that blood work uh which would be in the form of minerals uh, such as copper zinc perhaps uh any others that you were thinking of off the cuff probably just ferritin and b12 from the ones that i've seen from literature having a pretty clear direct yep. uh, relationship with like melanocyte function those would be the only yep. other two and so if someone is vegan or vegetarian then they will be more prone to being deficient in those and was, in the case yeah. of ferritin young females in particular that's um, another group that can struggle with that status a bit more yeah um, also during pregnancy and and after pregnancy all of that phase you are literally making a new child of spent more time than people would probably expect studying pregnancy phases and nutritional things but that's because i have a vested interest uh (laughs) in that uh but that's also a pretty important stage so uh making sure you have enough iron but i also like to encourage you don't want to be on the upper range of iron intake because that also applies oxidative stress Uh, so guys like your optim like your real they optimize everything for longevity not performance Uh, they're having the lowest possible amount of iron Um, and i wonder if we're going to see them graying more as a result which is not really a big issue uh, yeah it'd be interesting even just as like a case study or um you know just some observational data you know just even assessing those yeah we need to watch David Sinclair's hairline. That's probably the case because I know he aggressively manages his iron status. Um, but he's yeah. doing a lot of other things to, in theory, be healthy. But yeah. uh, but his iron's very low. Um, yeah, that's true. And yeah, and then then there is the other approaches like managing stress with supplemental approaches such as ashwagandha yep. or other options if ashwagandha is not a good call for you and those would be like phosphatidylserine, lion's mane, L-theanine. There's a bunch of others, but um, those are a few that come off the cuff as pretty accessible and good long-term health options. Um, yep. Magnesium, uh, specifically magnesium threonate or bisglycinate, but much more leaning on threonate. Um, and the last kind of uh, the last boat if you're kind of wanting to do everything or you are quite happy with the other beneficial effects on liver function then i would look into Mm. antioxidant uh supporting mechanisms all right so we'll just do a quick wrap up on uh, the general theme of the chat and i think that is to say premature hair growing is a definite thing and we've each had some experiences around that uh probably mine was due to i i'm speculating a high acute stress and because it was clumping of specific areas it was just probably those cells having some genetic difference that led them to be more uh, susceptible to that acute stress um it was reversible though 
so it could have been a nutritional thing too. Whereas uh, in the case with most of grain that we understand, especially if you run out of melanocyte stem cells, it appears to be irreversible. Is that a good statement? Yes, I would say if you start to notice it, try and get onto it as early as possible because there is definitely possibility of reversing that effect. Obviously, if you don't deplete your melanocyte stem cells, if you deplete your melanocytes temporarily, okay, if you've still got the stem cells available, they haven't proliferated to increase the, the number of those melanocytes, then cool. You can reverse that, but if you are too late, the stem cells, you know, kind of disappear in number, then yes, obviously it's going to be very, very irreversible. So my best advice is just target it nice and early once you start to notice it, obviously start to apply some of these things that we've that we've talked about on the podcast today. Yeah. And so basically, if you're well into hair growing, it is unlikely to be something that you can recover and all the supplements in the world are unlikely to do too much in that regard. Um because that is the main questions that I get. They just I get the slap heavy question of what supplements can I take to reverse my gray hair, and I'm like, well, probably at that point it's likely to be irreversible, and you'd have to catch it nice and early, and it has to be a case of not stem cell depletion, some other mm. angle like the mineral depletion, or yeah. so forth that would allow it to be reversible. Um, we will see there is some people thinking that there's some promising research to uh, instigate new stem cell growth which is a whole that's a whole crazy separate thing um, yeah so I would say right now it is not feasibly reversible <laughs> on that though so it does happen uh, mainly irreversible at a once you're well down the road if you catch nutrient angles, maybe reversible on the possible causes uh, or levers, I'd like to emphasize, uh, not necessarily cause, but mm -hmm. things that would potentially influence the growing of hairs. We're talking about adrenaline. And so think about or noradrenaline, think about your lifestyle that might be promoting more noradrenaline and things like that could be stress. And stress takes there's multiple ways you could do that for example stimulant intake might have an influence on that things like that uh and then also uh thinking about nutrient status on the whole i think that probably wraps it up good enough if people have any questions they're probably they're more than welcome to reach out to me and i'll probably talk on it this isn't really what you spend your primary focus on i think no, no neither is it for me but i'm i'm quite happy to tackle all sorts of health things but um absolutely yeah as much yeah 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 to a degree i'd say um probably respect jake's time a little bit more as a nutrition and um and training coaching sort of side is what i would say but if you do have nutrition and training requests i would highly recommend talking to jake because from this conversation, I'm sure you can understand he has um, a good ability to split uh, split hairs, uh, a, a good ability to discern differences between valid and non-valid information, and that is one of those primary things that I really appreciate in people that I think could be trusted across all, all fields. Yeah. Um, 
would you agree that you're a fantastic person to talk to, Jack? Oh, absolutely. I don't know if my yeah. clients would agree, but uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, yeah, I've talked to a bunch of your clients. They seem very happy too. So, um, yeah, no, awesome. yeah. that is cool. Uh, and yeah, and we will likely do uh, future chats, um, which might be more widely relevant to the bodybuilding community, more specifically down um, training, maybe a little bit of blood work chat. That would be yeah, that'd very... be awesome. Yep. Yeah, 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 cool. All right, we'll wrap that up, and hope you enjoy. Shoot us messages anywhere you can find us on social medias or email and stuff like that enjoy your day people